Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Do we see what other creatures see? Do we hear what they hear? Does the world around us, that we share with so many animals, feel the same to them as it does to us? On this week's episode of the BBC Earth podcast, we're taking a journey into the senses, exploring how we touch, taste and smell the natural world, how animals do it so differently, and wondering if we can ever bridge the gulf between our mind and theirs. In March of 2011, I made an appointment to go to the New England Aquarium in Boston and meet an octopus face-to-face. A keeper opened the lid to the tank belonging to their giant Pacific octopus, whose name was Athena. I saw her eyes swivel in its socket and lock onto mine. Then I saw her turn red with excitement and slide from her lair over to meet me. I saw her arms boiling up from the freezing cold water, reaching toward mine, so I plunged my hands and arms into the water, and soon I was covered with her soft, questing suckers. I was thrilled because it was so evident to me that she was just as interested and curious about me as I was about her. Our first story is about the delicate collection of different senses that we group together under the name touch. Using sensors in our skin, we can detect pressure, texture, hot and cold, pain and pleasure. Cy Montgomery is an author who writes about the natural world. She wrote a book, The Soul of an Octopus, about her time getting to know these most mysterious of creatures. She told me what it's like to touch one and be touched back. Beneath my touch, she's turning white. And that thrilled me too, because while red is the color of an excited octopus, white is the color of a relaxed octopus. So she felt relaxed with me. Now, I've always been fascinated by octopuses because you're looking at the animal but you definitely have the feeling the animal is looking at you back and that something is going on behind those eyes. They split off from us when everybody was a tube and there was nothing else. So it's amazing that you can go back to somebody that you last shared a common ancestor half a billion years ago and be friends with that animal. I got to know other octopuses as I continued to come visit the New England Aquarium and The next octopus who I got to know, her name was Octavia. At first, she didn't want anything to do with any of us. So the first time I offered a fish, she just had no interest. The second time, no interest. 
and when I offered her the fish on the end of a grabber, like big tongs. She had no interest in the fish. She was interested in the tongs, and then she was interested in me and grabbed me and started pulling me. She was just kind of testing me out and sort of playing with me. So the next time I saw Octavia, maybe a week later, she was eager to play. Once she got over her initial shyness, she was a total sweetheart. One of the things that they do when they grab onto you is they give you hickeys that you have to explain to your husband when you get home. <laughs> because they, they, can, they have quite a bit of suction. A three-inch sucker on a large male giant Pacific octopus is capable of lifting 30 pounds. They also, with their suckers, are capable of a pincer grip which is what we use when we are, for example, threading a needle or tying a knot. Well, octopuses can untie knots in surgical silk, which people have discovered to their horror when there's been a need to give an octopus some kind of a suture. The octopus will frequently take out all of the suture material and you find it floating in the tank in the morning. An octopus both is feeling you and tasting you with those suckers. All of their skin is capable of tasting as well as the sense of touch. To me, being investigated by an octopus felt like an alien's kiss. Well, each octopus has such a distinctive personality. At the Seattle Aquarium, they named one octopus Emily Dickinson because she was so shy. And another one they named Leisure Suit Larry because his arms were all over you from the minute he saw you. And I've also gotten to know some octopuses in the wild a little bit. Divers don't even see them very often. They camouflage, they can pour their baggy boneless bodies into little cracks like, like butter melting into an English muffin and just disappear. But every once in a while, you'll meet a bold octopus who wants to play with you. And sometimes they'll actually, literally take you by the hand and lead you around. And that's an amazing thing. When an octopus chooses to spend time with you. Each arm seems to have almost a mind of its own to the extent that Octopuses may have some shy arms and some bold arms. What might that be like? And what is the octopus's sense of self like? Maybe they have eight selves. Who knows? A lot of people wanted for a long time to deny animals souls, thoughts, feelings. We know now that all of these things are extremely adaptive and did not arise de novo in one species alone. We know, for example, that oxytocin, you know, the, the cuddle hormone, well, there's a hormone almost exactly like that in octopuses. And the same thing is true for the chemicals that are associated with fear and happiness and comfort and stress. I feel that they think, feel, and know. And increasingly, science is showing us that that is, in fact, true. And they live their lives so briefly, too. That's what kills me. They have this fabulous, incandescent life 
rich in senses, rich in intellect, and it's all over in three to five years. When Octavia died, after I had known her for years, I came into the aquarium to see her one last time, and we took the lid off the barrel where she was staying. Her skin was literally falling apart, and even though she was old and sick and clearly dying, she made the effort to come up from the bottom of that barrel just to greet me, look into my face one last time, and touch me and taste me one last time. And then she sank down to the bottom, and that was the last time I saw her, and she died not long after. It makes me cry even to this day, because what she gave me, the opportunity to be friends with someone like that, it's, it's like, did you ever see the movie E.T.? You know, that little boy, and he's such good friends with this extraterrestrial being. She expanded my capacity for wonder and for compassion. And what greater gift could anyone of any species bestow on a person? And I got it from an octopus. Learning about the extraordinary senses that many animals have, it's hard not to feel a bit pathetic by comparison. Dogs have a sense of smell 10,000 times stronger than our own. What must that be like? Hawks can see a mouse from a mile up in the air, and catfish have such sensitive skin, they're said to be able to detect earthquakes days in advance. There are animals which do things we don't even have the equipment for, like echolocate, see the infrared spectrum, or navigate by the Earth's magnetic field. One thing we do have, though, is big, clever brains. Throughout history, humans have used their cleverness to borrow the superior senses of the animals around us. We catch them or entice them, train them or persuade them to help us, hunting with dogs or eagles, fishing with the help of cormorants, or keeping a cat about the house to deal with rats that are just too quick for us. There's one example, however, where a tiny wild animal has evolved to cooperate with us without coercion. They persuaded us to help them. They lend us their superior vision in return for something they want. The greater honey guide is a rather unremarkable-looking small brown bird, about the size of a starling. The male has a bright coral pink bill and both sexes have white outer tail feathers that catch your eye as the bird flits ahead of you through the trees. Claire Spottiswood is an evolutionary biologist at the universities of Cambridge and Cape Town. Claire has been enamoured by this magical bird since she was a child in South Africa, and she spent her adult years living a childhood dream. This is the sound of cooperation between people and a wild animal. The honey guide bird calls to the human, and the human calls back. Honey hunter Orlando Yosine is in search of bees' nests in Mozambique's Nyasa Reserve. The honey guide bird, true to its name, is guiding them to one she's spotted in the forest. While the humans want the honey, the birds want the wax. The birds know where the bees are but can't get at the wax, whereas the humans know how to get at the wax but can't find the bees. This honey guide heard the honey hunter's call and approached us, attracting our attention with a distinctive chatter. 
It then kept chattering as it flew from tree to tree to a bee's nest high in a tree. The two then continued to signal to each other as they moved together through the bush towards a bee's nest. Through her research, Claire has proven that honey guide birds do, in fact, recognise and use specific calls as a cue to guide honey hunters to their sweet prize. When honey hunters follow honey guides and harness their sense of sight to find wild bees' nests, it more than triples their chances of finding honey. The bees' nests are usually hidden in a hollow tree trunk. When it reaches the nest, it perches quietly nearby, just giving the occasional chatter as it waits and watches. And this is where the human specialised skills kick in. The honey hunters gather a bundle of dry wood, wrap it in green leaves, tie it all together with strips of palm frond, set it alight, and then hoist this flaming bundle high into the tree on top of a long pole that they've just cut from a sapling. And the fresh green leaves then give off big billows of smoke that make the bees gather in a tight swarm on a nearby branch and mostly prevent them from stinging. The men can then use their very basic axes with, with incredible skill to chop at the trunk till the whole thing comes crashing down. They then chop out the bees' nests with their axes and haul out the honeycombs. The men take home the honey, leaving behind old bits of wax comb that the birds quietly fly down and feed on once their partners have cleared off. So it's our mastery of fire and tools, which are the crucial skills we trade with the honey guides for the information they give us. And this is truly an ancient trade. Our ancestors could have been doing business with honey guides for hundreds of thousands of years. Humans may have known about honey guides' behaviour for as long as we've been humans. Our utility to honey guides as cooperative partners probably goes as far back as our mastery of fire. Some scientists think that it goes as far back as 1.9 million years ago. All of this is rather vague because, of course, human honey guide interactions don't leave a trace in the fossil record, but our best, our best guess is that this relationship is probably something in the order of hundreds of thousands of years old. How did honey guides manage be before hominids came on the scene? We don't know, but given that many species of honey guide in the present day don't guide humans, it seems as though honey guides can manage with finding wax purely by their own means perhaps relying on bees' nests that have been deserted by absconding bees uh, and are no longer defended by deadly swarms of stinging bees. But this magical cooperative relationship is changing. Where we work in southern Zambia, guiding by honey guides isn't all that common anymore. That's sadly the case in large parts of Africa nowadays. Honey guides still sometimes try to communicate with people, but most people don't understand them. After all, if you can buy sugar at the market, why would you go to all the trouble of following a small bird through the bush and chopping down a huge tree and getting stung to bits by bees? In places where this cooperation still happens, people have developed distinctive calls to communicate with the local honey guides. As with all language, the calls differ from place to place. Somewhere it's a whistle, elsewhere it's a click. The honey guide birds recognise those calls, that's for certain. But there's another question Claire wants to find out the answer to. So as Claire continues her work, she's collaborating with anthropologist Brian Wood. What would happen then if you went to Hudzaland and went brr, hmm, or if you went to Nyasa and went <laughs> Would you find any honey guides? Would you find any honey? Well, we don't yet know the answer to that question, but it's one that Brian and I are together going to test next. 
This interview was originally recorded for BBC Radio 4's Natural Histories. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, and this week it's all about the senses. As humans... Our most powerful sense is probably our eyes. We can't see ultraviolet and our night vision isn't great, but compared to the rest of the animal kingdom, we have unusually sharp, high-definition vision. It's no wonder, then, that we rely so heavily on our sight to understand the world around us. But this next story is about what happens when you choose to focus on one of our other senses. The one you're using right now, in fact, to listen to this podcast. Your ability to hear. Okay, my name is Bernie Krause, and I record animals for a living. I'm a bioacoustician and a soundscape ecologist. Well, I've always been interested in sound because I don't have good eyesight. So my world is informed through what I hear. I began as a musician. Bernie Krause's musical credits are, to put it mildly, pretty impressive. He played guitar on Detroit Motown Records and played in the American folk band The Weavers, He was an early pioneer of electronic music, one of the first to use the synthesizer. In the late 1960s, it was him and his musical partner, Paul Beaver, that introduced the synth to the Birds, the Doors, Simon and Garfunkel, even the Beatles. They played on iconic movie soundtracks, The Graduate, Rosemary's Baby, Apocalypse Now. But the turning point for Bernie came in 1968, when Paul and he began making a new kind of album called In a Wild Sanctuary. The theme of the album was ecology, and it was the first album ever to use natural sound as a component of orchestration, so it meant that I needed to go into the field and record. I was terrified of doing that because I grew up in a family that was terrified of animals in the natural world. Yet when I turned on that recorder and heard the natural soundscape for the first time, there was a sense of, uh, of calmness that came over me and a beauty expressed by the natural soundscape, a stream running by, um, the wind coming off the ocean into the high canopy of the trees, the sounds of birds flying over in the stereo space from left to right. Never heard that before. And it was pretty amazing. It, I mean, it was a pretty astonishing moment. Bioacoustics is the recording of living organisms. There isn't very much vocabulary for sound in the English language, certainly. There's a lot for visual because we're a visual culture, but not for sound. So I started thinking about that. Bernie, ever the pioneer, decided to invent the language he needed, language to describe the different categories of sound that were flowing into his ears through his headphones. The words he coined are now standard in the field of acoustic ecology. The first sound produced on Earth was the geophony. Geophony, from the Greek, geo meaning earth and phon meaning sound. Geophony, earth sound. 
movement of the earth or wind in, in the trees, water in a stream or the ocean. For more than half of the life of the earth, the geophony was the sound that was produced, but there was no organism to hear it. 550 million years ago, when the organisms first began to appear, they called that the biophony. Biophony. From the Greek, bio meaning life, phon meaning sound. Biophony. Life sound. Each of the critters finds their own bandwidth within which to vocalize when their voices aren't masked by other creatures. Mammals are typically the lowest and the highest frequency and in the middle are frogs at one level, reptiles at another, birds and insects. I mean, it's organized just like a musical score when you see it as a spectrogram. And finally, I made a separate category for us because we have almost nothing to do with the natural world right now. I mean, except to plunder it, unfortunately. And I had to come up with a term for us, and anthropophany was the idea for me. Anthropophany. From the Greek anthropo, meaning human, and phon, meaning sound. Anthropophany. Human sound. I'm really primarily interested in the biophony and the geophony and how they interact with one another. I've got quite an archive of material. In Bernie's archive, you'll find more than 15,000 animal species. If it lives on our planet, he'll stick a microphone in front of it and discover its voice. Even animals you didn't think had a voice, like tiny fire ants. We dropped a little lavalier microphone down the ant hole, and all of a sudden the ants started to stridulate and make this noise which sounds like little squeaks, like rubbing a balloon, you know. What they were doing was they were communicating to one another to lift this impediment out of the hole. And they, little by little, moved the microphone away. And we got all that exchange. We were in Alaska at a little tide pool, and I noticed these beautiful anemones and was curious to see whether or not they made any noise. I dropped a hydrophone, an underwater microphone, down the mouth part, which is the center part of the anemone, you know, and the tentacles wrapped around it, searching for something food-wise. When they didn't find anything, the anemone expelled the uh, hydrophone, you know, with a kind of grunt-like sound, which is really amazing. I mean, that's one of the astonishing things that we discover. That had never been recorded before. Bernie discovered that, despite our excellent eyesight, you can hear things that you can't see. A patch of forest may look exactly the same year on year, but the sound will tell you a lot more about which animals are thriving and which are struggling. When a habitat is not healthy, that shows in the biophony. You have to look at it. You can just hear it for 10 seconds and you can tell immediately whether it's doing okay. For instance, I'd been recording at this place in the Sierra Nevada mountains for many years, and then in the late 80s, we were told by a logging company that they were going to try a new model called selective logging, which was taking out a tree here and there, and there'd be no environmental impact. So I went and recorded in 1988, just before they logged. I went back a year later in 1989, and sure enough, the soundscape had changed. The density and diversity had dropped off a lot. And I've been back maybe 16 or 17 times since. 
and the biophony is not yet returned to what it was prior to selective logging. 50% of my archive, more than 50% of my archive, comes from habitats that no longer exist. Algonquin Park in Canada has been really stressed because of global warming. I don't know if those wolves are there anymore. Uh, the Zanga Sanga rainforest in the Central African Republic, the elephants that I recorded, they've all been poached. It's very sad. Same thing with the Alaskan Yukon Delta. That delta is melting. That's in 50 years, and the soundscape shows that. It still thrills me. It still thrills me. I, I still get a big kick out of it, and I'm 80 years old now. I've been doing it 50 years. I think that people should get as far away from human endeavor as they can, any way that they can. And they have to spend time in a place that's bucolic and that is quiet and that, that helps us repair. All I can say is that I prefer things that are life-affirming and the sound of the natural world for me is just that. If you want to experience the natural world and you don't want to sit motionless in an Alaskan tundra for 10 hours or more like Bernie, then you could always stay home where it's warm and dry and watch it all on TV. But here too, the senses are important. Throughout this series, we've been dipping in and out of stories from the latest BBC natural history spectacular Seven Worlds, One Planet. And if you've been watching the series, you'll know how amazing it can be to see the spectacles of nature in full glorious technicolour. But of course, the shows we see on TV aren't just about the visuals. Just like Bernie says, to really appreciate the natural wonder, whether in life or on screen, you have to open your ears too. My name is Hans Zimmer, and uh, I'm a film composer. Well, sometimes I'm a film composer. Sometimes I am there to help Sir David Attenborough and the BBC say things that can only be said in music. You've probably heard of Hans Zimmer, known for scores like The Lion King, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Interstellar and Pirates of the Caribbean. It is actually quite different than composing for film because it is more important than anything else, I believe, that's being made out there at the moment in television or film. So you actually approach it with a certain amount of humility and, and, and a lot of respect, which sometimes ends up that you're driving yourself crazy at 3.30 in the morning when you should really be asleep. It does come with an added layer of responsibility. For Seven Worlds, One Planet, Hans worked with Jacob Shea to score the whole series. Their aim? To reflect the astonishing diversity of the seven continents in music. I'm getting more and more interested in trying to figure out how to make this something as a whole. You know, especially on this one, it felt really important that everything would lock in with everything else and pull everything together into one great, gigantic planet. The music is somehow an autonomous language in which you can describe something to people that might not be so easily described in words or images. How do we bridge that gap? How do we get under people's skin? What we are now showing is a world that is in crisis. And I think that's really the job. The job of the music is to add a poetic element to the whole thing. It has to provoke a certain provocative 
feeling in the audience. We are now in the sixth extinction um, on this planet, except it's the first time that, you know, an intelligent species is actually absolutely part of its own demise. It just makes it more important, it makes it more urgent that, that we come up with music and themes that somehow bring what we see on the screen closer to our emotions, closer to our heart, and in some places closer to our intellect. Once Hans has composed a new piece, he brings it to his biggest critics, his orchestra. I try to surround myself with a clear-headed people who are not afraid to give me that point of view. You know, everybody in that room is on a mission to make things better. And all ideas get hurt because all ideas are in the service of trying to make all of this more interesting, better, clearer, more emotional, not sentimental. The touch of sentimentality that so easily creeps into music, which I so try to take out because, you know, I mean, as Ridley Scott once said to me, you know, sentimentality is unearned emotion. And I tried to stick to that. I thought it was a pretty good thing to say. Why music? Why music in film? Man walks down the street, you hear music. It makes no sense whatsoever. But it does something. It does something nice. It does something interesting. It, it sometimes makes you look at things in a completely different way. It starts where images and language stop. And how and why it moves, you got like seven weeks to discuss this. Why does the opening to Beethoven Fifth still uh, mean so much to everybody? Why does a tiny piece of wood with a bit of strings on it create such beauty in a violin? Who knows? We can't put it into words and that's exactly how it should be. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast, and this was the final episode in the current series. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do, if you want more stories about our wild world, please do subscribe, leave a review, or let us know what you think on Twitter. Sign up for our newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter, which will keep you topped up on the latest news about animals, nature, and science. Until the BBC Earth podcast returns. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusive Apply. See site for details.